0: Welcome to Birkbeck Voices, I'm Bryony Merritt. Today I'm talking to Dr Laura Jacobus, Senior Lecturer in History of Art at Birkbeck, about her recent discovery of the earliest known use of what she has termed facsimile portraits in the 14th century. Thank you for talking to us today, Laura. It's a pleasure. Firstly, could you please tell us about what portraiture in the early 14th century was like generally, in terms of the expectations about what and how a portrait would tell us about its subject?
1: I think that's an interesting point to start with because of course today we're so inundated with portraits and there are millions being taken all the time and so we have a fixed idea of what a portrait is and it's a very democratic kind of image that everybody can participate in and in the 14th century it was very very different. For a start it was only the most important people or the people who considered themselves to be the most important people who had their portraits made but another reason which is I think more subtle but really interesting is that what they meant by a portrait was different so when we think of portraits today we think of something that essentially looks like the person that looks very like the person so in the case of photographs which are the most common form of portrait a photograph is an exact match for that person's physical likeness whereas a medieval portrait likeness was a very small consideration what a portrait tried to do was to represent the idea of the person so if a portrait was of a king it would be an image of a person usually sitting on a throne with a crown on their head and the person would be male it might have a beard to indicate that the king was old or it might not have a beard to indicate that the king was young. But that was as close to physical likeness as the portraits generally came. And as you go through into the later Middle Ages, people became slightly interested in physical likeness. So they tried to make their portraits look a bit more like the person they were portraying. But it was never the absolute major consideration. It was much more important to convey to the viewer that this was an important person why they were important so crown for a king bishops mitre for a bishop papal tiara for a pope and so on to give signs within the image that this was an important person they had a rank in society they were usually male but if it was a woman it would show that it was female and usually the way that you would tell which particular king or queen or pope it was, would be an inscription that would tell you, that would name the person, and also heraldry, which were the coats of arms of the family that that person belonged to. And if perhaps you had the coats of arms of the person's father and their mother, then that would uniquely identify them as a particular member of that family. So what constituted a portrait was really what we would think of as a set of signs and very vague images that had very little to do with what the person really actually looked like.
0: Okay, and the particular case that you uncovered in your recent art bulletin article uh, was that of a Paduan businessman Enrico Scrovegni. Mm. So who was Scrovegni and what do we know about him?
1: He was what we would today call a businessman, but in the Middle Ages business was something that wasn't necessarily favoured, it was rather looked down on by the upper classes, that might still even be true today a little (laughs) bit, but it was certainly true then. But it was also considered to be a morally dubious activity. So he was somebody who got his hands dirty with money. He was what we might call today a banker, but the term didn't exist at that time. So they called him a usurer which is a word for somebody who commits the sin of usury. And that's the idea that if you lend money and take interest for it, that's extortionate, that's, that's wrong, it's condemned by the church. You could even go to hell for being a usurer. So while, while we might think of him as a very, very successful businessman, he became the wealthiest man in his city, and his city was one of the most important in the region. So he was a very big fish from our point of view from their point of view he was clearly wealthy and that that he got some respect from that but he was always also a little bit dubious a little bit looked down on and he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder about
0: that as well and what were the particular
1: pieces of art that you looked at in this research i looked at three portraits of Enrico, and that in itself is very unusual because he wasn't a person of of huge rank, he was only a businessman, so nobody of his rank in society usually got themselves portrayed at all and he obviously had quite a big idea of himself because he had himself portrayed three times and I compared the three portraits and what you'd expect in medieval portraits is that they probably show his coat of arms, they might have a label saying that he's Enrico Spravegne and they might look a bit like him because the date we're talking about are the early thirteen hundreds, when they were already beginning to get a little bit interested in physical likeness. So I'd expect them to more or less give an indication of his age and maybe maybe a sense of his physical characteristics like whether he was fat or thin, whether he had a big nose or a little nose. You'd expect a certain amount of likeness in mm. these portraits. And what I found was one of the portraits, a painting by a famous artist called Giotto, did more or less conform to expectations. The other two portraits were sculptures of him and they were clearly made at different stages of his life. So one showed him in early middle age and the other showed him as an old man because it was actually the portrait, a sculpted portrait of him that went on his tomb So it's what we would call an effigy. So I looked at this statue and this effigy and together with colleagues here at Birkbeck, um, Nick Lambert, Dominic Mifsud and Liz Drew, we played around with digital technology to map the two portraits on top of each other. And what we found really, really surprised us, it was quite the heart stopping moment, actually, because even though these portraits One was of a middle-aged man, one was of an elderly man. So superficially, they, they didn't look that much alike. But when you mapped them onto each other, you found that the bone structure was identical. And that's just not what you'd expect at this date. You'd expect an approximate physical likeness and no more. But the fact that the bone structures were identical must mean that they'd captured his likeness mechanically in some way. It's the only way you'd get that exact match. And they didn't have photography in those days, so can rule that out. Um, so then I started to look at how is this possible that they could even do such a thing. And I also started thinking, why would they want to do it? It's completely out of character for the time even to want to capture his physical likeness. What I found was that there was a technology around that would enable them to do that but art historians weren't aware that it was used in the early 1300s and that technology was making a facial cast we're slightly familiar with this idea because we've heard of death masks and that's when you you these days you would use latex or rubber um, but in earlier days you used plaster of paris and you would take a mould of the face of somebody who died. But we didn't know that that was being used this early. What we did have was a writer, an artist in the 15th century, who wrote about taking life casts. This is a practice where you have your living subject, you make him lie flat, you stick some tubes in his nostrils so that he's gonna be able to breathe, and you tell him to stay very, very still, and then you paint Pastor plaster of Paris all over his face. And we had a record of that being done in the 15th century, but this is 150 years earlier than that. Mm. But as far as I can tell, it's the only possible way that these things could have been done.
0: And so if um, Enrico wanted a portrait in his physical likeness, How does an artist bring their own style to bear on the piece?
1: Well that also became very intriguing because as I said I I actually had to use digital methods to discover that they were identical under the skin, the bone structure hadn't changed, but what each artist had done they'd still had to render his actual features by hand. This wasn't a life cast stuck onto a body, this was a something that the artists themselves must have copied from a life cast. So they would do it by using an instrument called calipers, which is like dividers. It could take exact measurements in any dimension. But then they would still be faced with a block, a square block of marble and they'd have to transfer that, the, the characteristics of that life cast into hard stone. So that still is a creative, artistic endeavour. Mechanical copying comes into it because you can copy the measurements, but you're still in the end carving by hand. And that's where artistic personality comes in. So the the sculpture, the the statue of Enrico as a younger man, as a, well, I suppose, early middle-aged man, the sculptor who was doing that was doing something for the very first time. He was doing something that was hugely challenging for him because as far as we know, there was no other sculpture like this. Nobody could have taught him to do it. He or somebody close to him must have had the idea of doing it. And then he stuck with this problem. How do I do it? And he opted for the safest way possible. He copied the mask as exactly as he possibly could. And since Enrico Scriveni must have been lying flat on his back, immobile, probably uncomfortable and a bit terrified, but in a sense petrified, staying absolutely still, he got a face, a a, a a cast of a face, which was literally a mask. It was a mask of the face, but it also was a mask in that it had no character, no no expression. Enrico's face would have been rigid. His eyes would have been closed it would have been like he was asleep, expressionless, characterless. And in a sense, the first statue, this earlier statue, is like that. It's got a kind of mask-like quality to it. He, he, The cast he was copying had closed eyes and closed mouth. The artist needed to open the eyes to give a, a statue that looked alive, so he had to kind of guess that little bit and he does it quite well but he forgets about eyelids because this was the first time anybody had ever done this and he was faced with a, a cast with closed eyes so when he carved open eyes he did open eyes they look a little bit staring but it was the first time anyone had done it and he also tried to open Enrico's mouth when the cast that he was copying had a closed mouth he just opened it a little bit but he kept the outline of the lips exactly the same. We know that because it's the same on Enrico's effigy from later. So he was having to make decisions all the time. How do I do this? How do I copy it? What do I include? He includes a couple of wrinkles. He includes a mole. Um, So he's not trying to make a flattering portrait. He's trying to make it as exact as he possibly can and you get this this statue, the earliest known, what I would call a facsimile likeness, an exact copy, a facsimile, of a person, but it doesn't look particularly alive. So all credit to him, he's the first. But the second artist who made a, an effigy of Enrico Scriveni as an old man, he was more ambitious. So he decided he wanted Enrico to look as if he was just waking from sleep. And that would work very well for an effigy because the idea was that come the resurrection, the, the last judgment, everybody would wake up from the dead. So that's the idea he's trying to convey. But he still would have been copying a mask of Enrico as a very old man with his fidget feet features rigid and still and his eyes closed and so on and what this second artist does and we don't know his name is he introduces a little bit of movement in the features he has one side of the face slightly sagging he has the muscles in Enrico's forehead slightly contracting so there's a slight frown or a slight feeling of where am I I'm just waking up Um, to this effigy it doesn't look dead it looks as if it's waking from sleep and to do that he had to use his own imagination, the cast didn't give him that, so he could copy. I'm talking about the artist the artist could copy the features of the cast but he had to animate them himself, he had to inject life into them and so it's it's a portrait that's I think even today stands the test of time. It has a modernity about it because we expect our portraits to have character and this one does.
0: And um, what did Enrico's preference for this style of portraiture come from? Well, sorry, where did um, Enrico's preference for this style of portraiture come from at a time when the fashion was still very much for portraits that presented characteristics over physical likeness? Yes. I wish I knew, but I'm only really guessing.
1: You just have to look at what the probabilities are. of What what could have put the idea into his head? Why would this idea of facsimile likeness, of copying actual physical features, why would it it have occurred then in that place and in that time? And to us, it might seem like an obvious progression. Of course you'd want a, a, a portrait to look like the person. It's obvious, but it wasn't obvious at the time. And one way we we have of knowing that is nobody followed Enrico's example. He didn't suddenly initiate a fashion for portraits that look exactly like the person. It wasn't another 150 years before people started doing that again. So it's a kind of one-off. And the only reason I can think of is that the kinds of people who were around in Padua at that time... It's almost like a perfect storm of people being in the right place at the right time. So not only do we have the artists who Enrico employed to make his two statues, but we also have various intellectual figures who were all together at this time and they were interested in, in Roman antiquity. We think Enrico Scriveni was as well because some of his, the artists, other artists that he employed were also interested in Roman antiquity so he had an interest in the art of the long-distance paths and that art did used to produce realistic likenesses so it seems like Enrico and the kind of people he mixed with the intellectuals and the artists of the time were interested in reviving this classical form of art where you had realistic looking portraits that's one possible reason And then there's another possible reason, which is that the very same intellectuals who were interested in the art of the past were interested in writing a new kind of history. Just like portraiture, history wasn't that interested in the truth at this date. It tended to be creating myths or else recording facts, simple facts. But these intellectuals at the time started to be interested in the way the Romans wrote their histories, which was much more detailed, much more including anecdotes, telling stories about people, including um, verbal descriptions of famous people. All of this was an ancient kind of history that these intellectuals were interested in reviving. And the final factor is that a lot of these intellectuals were also lawyers. So they had a legal interest and a legal interest in facts and in evidence. And when you put these things together, this interest in classical antiquity, this interest in a new way, or rather an old way, of writing history, but renewing that way of writing history, and their legal training, you have a group of people who are interested in, I suppose, in telling it like it is, in art as evidence, and it's interesting that one of the statues of Enrico Scriveni actually became legal evidence of how he looked and we know this because a hundred years later in a legal case there is a reference to the inscription that inco- accompanied the statue and it's like the statue and its accompanied, accompanying its inscription were used as evidence that Enrico Scriveni had lived at this time and that he'd founded the chapel that this statue is associated with. So it's a particular idea of portrait that had its moment because all these people came together at the same time and they were interested in these things. Then they disperse and nobody tries to do a portrait like that again for 150 years or so. So it's it's a very particular moment in time where suddenly people were really interested in preserving accurate physical likeness. And it's an important idea because it's an idea that's really at the basis of modern portraiture. It's what we we today expect a portrait to be. And it's also the antecedent of other forms of facsimile portraiture, that facsimile being exact copying. And we get that later with things like photography or 3D printing today, where we take 3D image capture and we create a portrait that way. So it's really an idea that was 700 years ahead of its time.
0: <laughs> Great. Thank you for that. And thank you for talking to us today. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. That's all for this episode of Birkbeck Voices. See you next time.